0: 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 Hear the word of the Lord But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction and many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed and in their greed they will exploit you with false words Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion, and despise authority. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. In 1987, Alan Bloom published this book called The Closing of the American Mind. And it became a bestseller. I read it a few years later and held on to it, among the many books I gave away when we moved back to Mexico, I wanted to hold on to this one. It made quite a stir, because Professor Bloom was a professor of uh, social thought at University of Chicago, and he had been at other Ivy League schools as well, so he was a very heavy hitter academically, and basically, in this book, he preached heresy. And so it really stirred people up. And what was the heresy that he preached? He preached that there may be something out there that is actually true, and other things are not true. He starts his introduction like this, there is one thing that a professor can be absolutely certain of, almost every student entering the university believes, or says he believes, that truth is relative. If this belief is put to the test, one can count on the student's reaction. They will be uncomprehending. That anyone should regard the proposition as not self-evident astonishes them. As though he were calling in the question, 2 plus 2 equals 4. And then he says, the true believer is the real danger. The study of history and culture teaches that all the world was mad in the past. Men always thought they were right. And that led to wars, persecution, slavery, xenophobia, racism, and chauvinism. The point is not to correct the mistakes and really be right. Rather, it is not to think you are right at all. And he says that's the, that's the, that's the heritage that we've gotten. And in his day, he was saying of the last 50 years, and you can tack on the years that we've had since then, relativism reigns. That there is no truth. Nothing is true, nothing is false, except, of course, that very statement. That nothing is true, and nothing is false. There, relativism, relativism is relative, except regarding itself. And that's another problem. But, um, the, the point of this is that this text that we're going to see today, and in fact all of the Bible, is very problematic if you believe in relativism. Because this text pounds the table and says, there are things that are true, and there are things that are false. And if you teach things that are true, you are a true teacher, and if you teach things that are false, you are a false teacher. And this is not just the perspective of Peter, or of this letter, or of the New Testament, but the perspective of the whole Bible, and it has been the perspective of much of the world up until recent times in the West. That there are things that are true, that there are things that are false. If we teach what is true, we are true teachers. If we teach what is false, there are false teachers. And up to this point in Peter, he has been focusing on true and true teachers. And we, in the last couple of weeks, we met those. There are two groups. There are the Apostles and there are the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament. Those are true teachers of things that are really true. And now he turns and focuses on false teachers. And he he makes the contrast here, the pivot from defending the truth to attacking error. When he says, but false prophets also arose among the people. He's saying, in the past... You have your apostles, you have your prophets, but also, among the people there were false prophets, and he says, just as there will be among you. So, you shouldn't think you're any different. If you're in the New Testament, if you're the people of God, if you're believers, you should expect to happen exactly what happened in the Old Testament times. There arose from within the people of God in the Old Testament, false prophets. And he says, you should expect the same thing. False prophets will arise among you as well. And it's interesting to note that Jesus, Paul, John, Jude, and Peter all warned the church about false prophets arising, not outside, but arising within the church to lead people astray. Now, what does it mean to be a false teacher or a false prophet It may be that they're false in their pretension to be a teacher or to be a prophet. Like, they're really not a prophet, they're really not a teacher, but they're pretending to be. But in addition to that, they teach error, they teach falsehood. And he talks about the errors they introduce here. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So they will teach, literally... Heresies of destruction. Now, this is probably ironic here, because one of the things that these false teachers were denying was the powerful coming of the Lord. And the powerful coming of the Lord brings with it judgment. And so they were denying the powerful coming of the Lord, and they were denying final judgment. And so he says, they are actually, by their teaching, bringing in their own destruction that they deny. So they're denying the possibility of judgment, the possibility of destruction, and by their teaching, they are bringing it upon themselves and upon their own hearers. Now it says here that they denied the master who bought them. Now that's a curious expression, and the master here, uh, the word is a really strong one, and it's uh, the word from which we get despot, the word without the negative connotation, but it's it's an absolute ruler. So they deny the absolute ruler who bought them. And there are a couple possibilities here. It could be that these were Jewish false teachers, and it could be that there's a reflection on the fact that the Jewish people were bought by the Lord, by the Master, by the sovereign ruler, God Himself, out of Egypt. And if so, it's focusing on the fact that they were, they were bought as Jewish people out of Egypt, and at the same time they were denying the one who bought them out of slavery, but most people think that it refers to Jesus, the Master, the Lord, who bought them. And this is language that we find in the New Testament. This is slave market language. This is redemption language. This is rescue language. This is um, this is uh, the idea of somebody that is that is in slavery and has been abandoned to something and is bought out with a price and. 1 Corinthians uh, 6.20, Paul says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. And then we find out in Galatians 3.13 what that price is. Christ redeemed us. The word is bought out. Christ bought us out from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us, because as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So this is very much in in concert with New Testament language about what Jesus did for his his people. He bought us out. But immediately we, we face a problem here. It says they deny the master who bought them. But it doesn't look like they've been bought, does it? It looks like they're still in their sin and still in their condemnation. So it could be it could be that there's some irony going on here. It could be that he's saying they deny the master who bought them. But it's really obvious to all, because of this denunciation, that they haven't been bought out of slavery, that they're still immersed in their slavery. So it could be that there is some sarcasm or irony here. But at the same time, at the same time, if this refers to Jesus, as I think it probably does, this is the this is the, the clearest reference in this letter to what Jesus did in giving himself, being cursed himself to buy us out of the curse of the law. Now, um, in addition to, in addition to their false teaching, they also behaved badly, and, and these things go together. False teaching leads to false behavior. False belief leads to bad behavior. And we see this in verse 2. And many will follow, they were persuasive by the way, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed. So what are their motivations here? Well, we find that greed is one of their motivations. They They want money, they want power, they want influence. They're greedy, and they also want to indulge themselves sensually. And so, that's kind of an easy sell, isn't it? That's an easy sell. That's why they get many followers. They say, well, just come follow this idea, and you can indulge your passions as much as you want, and everything will be okay, and you can get rich in the meantime. That's kind of an easy religion to sell if people will buy into it. They have many followers. But there's a deep concern here about this sort of false teacher or false prophet, and it's this because of them, verse 2 because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, it will be maligned, it will be criticized. People will speak ill of Christianity of the Christian faith of Christ himself because of the behavior of these teachers and their followers. And this is something I find to this day. When I'm out trying to talk with people about the gospel, one of the one of the biggest objections I hear is not intellectual. In our in our Society here, perhaps, maybe in a university setting, it might be more intellectual problems with the gospel. Most people I meet don't have intellectual problems with the gospel. They have moral objections, not to the gospel, but to Christians, and especially to Christian pastors. And, and many times I, I have talked with them and they've said, Well, I'm, I'm not really, I don't really trust organized religion, I don't really trust church because I knew a pastor who did this or who did that and that puts us in a very awkward situation but it's one that the the new testament is concerned about there is repeated concern in the new testament about what other people think about us sometimes you hear people boast i don't care what other people think about me and usually those are people who are very rude and insensitive And they say i don't care what people think about me i can act however i want or we could say that in a good way well, I don't want to be enslaved to other people's opinions about me. There's a good way of saying that as well. But there is a a concern in the New Testament for what other people think about us. Not that we are catering to their opinions, on the contrary. But we are concerned about giving any sort of unnecessary reason for them to criticize us. And this is interesting to note the similarity between 1 Peter and 2 Peter in this regard. 1 Peter, he's hammering away at the need to have good conduct and good conscience. For example, 1 uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ Jesus may be put to shame. Or back in chapter 2, verse 12 of First Peter, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He's saying, if there's anything they're going to criticize, let it be your good works. Let it be your good conduct. Let it be your clear conscience. And if they criticize you for that, congratulations. That's great. But let them not criticize you for being just like them or worse than them, for being greedy, for being sensuous, for, for taking advantage of the faith in order to indulge yourselves. Now, this puts us in a very awkward position. And whenever somebody says that to me, it's sort of hard to know how to, how to respond. Because what I want to do is to say, Yeah, but but that's not really what Christianity is all about. And that sounds like special pleading, doesn't it? It sounds like, well, okay, but that's not a real Christian. But actually, that's what Peter's doing, isn't he? He's saying, these are pretend Christians. These aren't real Christians. These aren't real Christian teachers. And that's why their behavior is so appalling. And so, even though it's awkward, we do need to make that distinction. If somebody has not been bought out of their sin, they've not been bought out of their sin. If somebody has not been rescued from their sin, then they have not been rescued from their sin. That is to say, they are not true believers in Christ. And you can tell by the way they live their lives. Now, that's the, that's the, uh, the, the denunciation of these, these false teachers. Um, and, and there's a contrast here in verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. False words. And if you go back and look at verse 16 of chapter 2... He says, we didn't make things up. We didn't follow cleverly devised myths, but they do. They're accusing us of following cleverly devised myths, but they're the ones that are following cleverly devised myths. They make up their own teaching out of whole cloth. And then he says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. That condemnation that they deny, that destruction that they deny, it's not asleep it's not idle, it's hanging over them. Now the rest of this, the rest of this, um, this section from 4 to 10 is a long conditional sentence. If, then. If, then. And the if part goes from verses 4 to 8, it's a long if part. And then the then part is verses 9 and 10. So, if you look at verse 4. For if, verse 5. If, uh, verse 6. If, verse 7. And if, verse 8. Or rather, verse 9. Then. Then. And this if, this if section, has three examples of judgment on sinners in the Old Testament, particularly in the, the book of Genesis. Three examples. And it has two examples of rescue, of rescue of believers. So, three examples of judgment, two examples of rescue. And then it concludes with the then part. And the then part is, if we see this in the Old Testament, then God knows how to deal with this now. Because he's seen this before. And he's dealt with this before. And let me give you three examples of when he dealt with this sort of thing in the Old Testament. Now, what are these, these three if uh, examples of judgment? The first one are the angels. Verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned. Likely referring to Genesis chapter 6, an unusual passage there. He doesn't go into details about what they did. He just says they sinned. Angels who sinned. But what did he do? He cast them into the deepest part of hell, it's an unusual word there, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. There is only judgment there, there is no rescue there, is there? They did not get an opportunity of rescue, they sinned, they were kept in the lowest part, and they are awaiting their judgment at the end. The second example is the ancient world. And this is Genesis 6 to 9, which is the story of the flood in ancient times. For if he did not spare the ancient world, and uh, he says that he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. There's the second example of judgment. And the third is in verse 6, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned, condemned them to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And that's in Genesis as well. So we have these three examples. God knows how to bring judgment on those who spurn Him. We have the angels, we have the ancient world, and we have the two cities. And there's some progression here. There's progression. It starts with, we could call the celestial angels. He knows how to deal with celestial beings when they turn against Him. And then he goes down to terrestrial, the world, the ancient world, humanity. He knows how to deal with humanity also, when humanity turns against him. And then he goes down even further to a locality, to two cities. He knows how to deal with societies that turn against him. Celestial, terrestrial, and local. And there's also a ramping up. As he talks about angels, they sin doesn't say what they did. And then we find out that the ancient world was ungodly. They spurned God. And then we get to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it describes them as wicked and lawless. And so here he's he's getting more and more local, and the sins are also getting more and more heinous and specific. But in the midst of that, we have the two examples of rescue, don't we? We have the rescue of Noah and seven of his family members. So the Lord knows how to rescue his people when the time is right for rescue. And we have the rescue of Lot. Lot was rescued by force, was, was basically dragged out of Sodom, and uh, was rescued from the destruction that came upon them. Then we have the then part. The then. The then has two conclusions. If in light of angels, the ancient world, Sodom and Gomorrah, if in light of Noah and Lot, if in light of those, we can conclude some things about what God knows how to do. Verse 9. It says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial. Here it's in plural, but it's trial. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So Peter is basically saying, Don't worry about yourselves and don't worry too much about what will happen to these false teachers. God knows how to take care of you, and God knows how to take care of them. And since the focus is on the final judgment here, they're being kept for the final judgment, the focus for believers may also be on that as well. He says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial. And here we may have in view the trials of daily life, Or we may have in view the final trial, that final day of judgment which is in view here. Don't worry about that day if you are in Christ, if you have been bought back, if you have been bought out, redeemed, rescued. He knows how to rescue you on that day as well. Now, this is the, this is the message, but there's also, there's also more practical instruction for us here. Well, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do in the meantime? This just says what, what God has done, what God will do with the false teachers, what he will do with his people. But what about us? It's interesting to note that by going from angels to the ancient world, to two cities, that he's getting closer to us, isn't he? Because angels, what can we do with them? I mean, they're not much of an example for us to follow or to avoid. I mean, there's, they're, they're angels after all. We're humans. In the ancient world, that's a pretty big thing to think about. But what about cities? We all live in cities, don't we? And our cities, in some ways, are similar to the cities that were destroyed in the day of Lot. And our situation is more similar to Lot's situation than to the other situation. So he's bringing it closer and closer to us, to home, and we find in these details, some some practical instructions for us about how to live, how to live if we live in these cities of rebellion as well. Now, when we think about Lot, this this is sort of difficult here, because if you look at the story of Lot in Genesis, he's kind of a mixed figure, isn't he? He's kind of a checkered person. He's got some evidences of good qualities, but, but there's also, it looks like, a great deal of weakness there as well, which enables us to identify with him, doesn't it? Uh, it Maybe he's the, the most easily easy for us to identify of all of them. It's hard to identify with angels. It might even be hard to identify with Noah, who was righteous in his generation, but, but Lot, we can identify with him. But it keeps calling him righteous here. And that's curious, because if you go back and look at the account, that maybe isn't the first word that would come to our minds to describe Lot. But in comparison, in comparison with the people around him, he was certainly relatively righteous. And we do find him raising at least a weak objection to the righteousness or the unrighteousness that was around him. And... It also says here that he was afflicted by it. He was was at least righteous enough to be afflicted by the the unrighteousness that, that reigned around him. And so what are the lessons that Lot gives us? Well, if we are Christians, and if we live in the midst of cities in which wickedness reigns in many ways, then we should at least at least be better than the people around us. If we have been bought out from sin and death and judgment, then, then at least, at least, as a bare minimum, our lives and our conduct and our consciences should be better than those who don't know the Lord. But in addition to that, it says that He was pained. He was distressed. He was troubled by the wickedness that He saw around us. And so should we be. We should be pained. A couple of writers, Dick Lucas and Christopher Green, in their commentary wrote this The alert Christian will find it a painful business to be faithful surrounded by filth. If we do not find it painful, then Paul's letter, sorry, Peter's letter should alert us to the likelihood that we have become more compromised in our world than Lot was in Sodom. So we can ask ourselves, how comfortable are we with the filth around us? Does it pain our hearts? Is it, is it painful for us to be faithful in the world in which we live? If not, it may be that, that we're too comfortable in the filth that's around us. Now, Sometimes, and I've heard this a great deal when, since coming back to the States, sometimes Christians are very sensitive to the filth that's around us. But what, what we often do is begin to scold. To scold and to condemn and say, wow, the world's really terrible. It's really bad out there. Those, those people are really bad. And when we speak like that, the subtext of that is, and we're much better, of course. But you see... We need to be careful with that. Because if we look at this this filth that's around us, we need to remember that we were once part of that filth. That, that God rescued us. That Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That He bought us out of that filth precisely. So we're not in any position to point our finger and to scold the world. as If we were somehow better... No, we were rescued out of that very filth that we see around us. Well, what's a better response than scolding? Well, here's where Noah comes in. Noah, interestingly, is called a herald or a preacher of righteousness in verse 5. We don't get that from the Genesis account, but we can easily imagine. Um, Noah, what are you building there? Oh, it's, it's an, an ark. An ark? An ark? for what? Well, it's a it's a big boat because God's going to bring judgment upon the world. He's going to fill it up with water. Well, you can imagine the kind of conversations he would have during those long months of, of building this ark. And it says here that he was actually a herald of righteousness. He was a herald to his his day of righteousness. Now, We don't know how he preached righteousness. We don't have that conversation that we can only imagine in our heads. How did he declare righteousness to his generation? We don't know. But we do know how righteousness is preached in the New Testament. We do know how we can preach it today. And if we go, for example, to the letter to the Romans, we find a great way to preach righteousness to our generation. It starts like this. Righteousness is God's requirement of all human beings. All human beings are required to be righteous before God. And if they are not, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness of men. Romans chapter 1. And then we find that there is no one righteous, that no one meets those righteous requirements. And so we go to chapter 3, and we find there is no one righteous, no, not one. So righteousness is required, but righteousness is not fulfilled in our lives. And then we get toward the end of chapter 3, and we find that righteousness is not only what God requires of of us, but is the gift He gives to us in Christ Jesus. For now, for now, a righteousness from God has been revealed apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ. That righteousness that God requires, that we could not fulfill, now we find that He gives it to us as a gift. And then we go to Romans 8, and we find that now, that we who walk not by the flesh, but walk by the Spirit... Fulfill the requirements of righteous living in our lives. How can we preach righteousness to our generation? Righteousness required. Righteousness not fulfilled. Righteousness given as a gift in Jesus Christ to be received by faith. And then, for those who have received righteousness as a gift by faith, the possibility through the Holy Spirit of living a genuinely righteous life. You see, that's the message that we've been entrusted with in our generation. So as we look around, as we're pained by what we see, we remember from where we came. We remember that Christ redeemed us from just that. And we have this amazing privilege of being heralds of this righteousness that God gives to all who will but believe in His Son. Let's pray. Oh God, we first pray that You would keep us and let me pray personally. I'm a teacher. I'm a preacher in Your church. I pray that You would keep me from ever being a false teacher. That You would guard my words, oh God, from ever saying anything that's false, that's not true. That anything would bring You into disrepute, Your reputation, Your gospel. Oh God, spare me, spare our church that tragedy and I pray that all who who stand before this congregation or before our children whatever the teaching might be that it would be faithful that it would be true that we would not have false teachers among us and that if any try to come among us and lead any astray that we would recognize them immediately for what they are and not allow them a foothold among us Lord, we know that many churches have been taken down by false teachers, promising various things and unable to fill, bringing destruction upon themselves and, tragically, upon their hearers. Oh God, may that never be among us. Protect me, protect us, O oh God. But rather, we pray that we would live in the midst of our wicked generation, that we would live as faithful people, as righteous people, and as heralds of your righteousness, remembering that you have bought us out of the filth around us and declaring to others that, that we have had rescue, that we have been bought out, that we have been redeemed, not by any works of our own, but because of your mercy and because of Christ's sacrifice for us. O oh Lord, make us your righteous people in this generation and make us your heralds of righteousness that many others may come to know Jesus, and be bought by Him. And we pray this in His name. Amen.